Hello again, and welcome back to this episode of the Ask Me podcast. I'm Dan Smith, Sustainability and Construction Manager for Mitsubishi Electric, and I'm joined today by my fellow colleagues, Richard Wenger, and returning for yet another stint in the hot seat, Mr. Chris Newman. Before we make introductions and explain who's who, I want to set the scene and give you a flavour on what to expect on this week's pod. Last week, we focused on the concept of the stranded asset. This week, we're going to continue with that theme, but in a slightly different context. And so what? What can we do about it? As always, we want to hear from you as to what topics Ask Me and Mitsubishi Electric should discuss. So please, please, please do me a favour, subscribe, follow, like, comment and share. Before we kick off, um, very relevant, gents, the second reading of the Carbon Emissions Bill is playing on Parliament TV right now. Um, so very relevant to our topic today. But without further ado, let's uh, start with some introductions. Richard, welcome. A little bit about yourself, Rich. Sure. So uh, obviously, my name is Richard Wenger. I've worked at Mitsubishi for about 11 years now. Um, currently, I'm the business manager for Engineered Solutions, which means that I run a team that's uh, supporting the rest of our business mm-hmm. um, with the technical skills and the technical experience to apply our larger, bespoke, made-to-order heat pumps, chillers, and IT cooling. And Rich, you're one of Mitsubishi's homegrown, is that right? Yeah, I started on the graduate scheme in 2011. Wow. Um, done various roles within the business, starting out on site services and yeah. installing uh, uh, prototype systems in the back gardens of some of our uh, some of our leaders and uh, various other things. But yeah. Um. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in. And Chris, for your sins, mate, you've joined us for yet another episode. Welcome. Yeah, hello, Dan. Thank you for having me back. Appreciate it. No worries. Uh, I don't need to do another introduction because I'm sure everybody would have listened to our last podcast anyway. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I am uh, uh, the Zero Carbon Design Manager for Mitsubishi Electric. Um, so yeah, my job is to try and get involved as early as possible and try and help steer concept uh, design conversations with our clients, try and help join up our solutions with uh, what good looks like for them. Perfect. Thanks, mate. Short and sweet. And whilst we're talking about followers, I would just like to ask our listeners to like, share, comment, and subscribe. It helps our podcast um, bring in new guest speakers, not just from Mitsubishi, but outside of the industry. So please do that for us. Um, and let's kick off. So I recently sat on a steering group with the Supply Chain Sustainability School. There's a little plug for the gang over there. And we were talking about the concept of the retrofit piece and, and the stranded as- asset market. And, and the question that we pondered chaps for two hours was what knowledge do business leaders need to know to help them tackle the retrofit challenge and I appreciate that it's a broad stroke brush but I think it's a good place to to kick off with the and so what in mind who wants to take that piece on (laughs) well I I mean I'll start with um so yeah for the last three years you know working with with engineering solutions you know retrofit buildings have, have been something that we've um had to steer into quite a bit. I would say before, before 2018, before 2017, most of most of our focus for um, for large scale heat pump applications was new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, uh, following public sector decarbonisation um, fund, we, we we as a business really started to move into the world of retrofit in a big in a big way, looking at much larger scale. And and the first thing that that that, that we kind of um, well, the first challenge that we run into um, is is trying to understand how carbon and how energy is, is being used and how it's being emitted mm-hmm. in that building. 
Um, some of the buildings in the UK, very old, have been around for a very, very long time uh, with very archaic heating and HVAC systems. And when you come to modernize that, there is very little to work with in terms of data, mm -hmm. in terms of how that building's being used, how loads are coming, um, coming and going throughout the seasons, how cooling is affecting the heating, et cetera. Um, and, and that is a huge challenge. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll pass over to Chris because he's, he's got some, you know, he's got a huge amount of experience with this type of problem as well. Maybe more experience, Rich, possibly, but no, no more answers, unfortunately, because <laughs> a lot of these projects that we look at, um, it is a blank piece of paper. I mean, what is there? Something like 1.7 million commercial buildings in the UK. Uh, the broad figures are around about 80% of them will still be here in 2050. So that's an awful lot of buildings that need to find a way to get to net zero. Um, and as you said before, when we're trying to come up with a plan, we need to understand how the building currently works today in order to uh, propose a solution for how it might work in a lower carbon, more sustainable way in the future. So it's, uh, it's not easy. And um, a lot of the jobs I look at, you know, there isn't even drawings for the building, uh, never mind detailed heat loads, cooling, uh, cooling heat gains, things like that. So it is a difficult job, difficult to, to make a start on it, but we've, we've obviously got to. And uh, a lot of the time, I think the, the problem that we see with applying heat pump technology specifically is that uh, I might be saying something controversial here. It's not cheap. Um, certainly in comparison to, you know, the way that it's been done previously with the gas fired or fossil fuel technology. So um, decisions that you make are, are, you know, they do have a big financial implement and, um, you know, impact on the building and how you implement them can also affect the building as well. You can't just decant an entire building to make significant changes to the infrastructure in that building. Um, before you fit a heat pump system or, or something else to it. So it's got to be very carefully planned. And like I say, that's very difficult to do when you uh, you don't fully understand how the system's operating today. So it goes back my, to my favorite um, phrase is, I think I used last time, you can't reduce what you don't measure. So you you've got to start by measuring it. You stole the words out of my mouth, Chris. I was about to say the, the, the old sales <laughs> word, <laughs> you, can't, you can't manage what you can't measure. So it, it, sort of in conclusion, we're having real difficulty making data-led decisions, as, as Richard highlighted, and you just mentioned there, Chris, during what the design phase of the retrofit is where we're deeming it to be the most important phase when, when gathering data, thinking about what we need and, and what it needs to look like. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I think I'll bring to the, you know, bring to the table in terms of the topic. Um, when it comes to decarbonization of existing buildings, one of the most common approaches that I see within my team and, and what we how we interact with the built environment is uh, trying to replace cooling only equipment for equipment that can provide both heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. So in our world, one of the product uh, ranges that we can offer is, a, is what we call a multifunction four pipe chiller. It's basically a chiller that can produce both heating and cooling at the same time. When it does that, it, 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 it can operate at very high efficiency, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. So straight away, we're doing something that we've not typically done before in, 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 in existing buildings. We're, we're coming to an existing building where you typically had a heating system, which was completely separate from a cooling system. The two would work independently um, and, and would be controlled ultimately independently, obviously heating taken over in the winter, cooling uh, uh, peak loads in the summer. So now, um, you know, one of that, like I said, one of the common approaches to decarbonisation replace the chiller 
with mm-hmm. a unit that can do both heating and cooling. Now, when you select the equipment, it's really important to understand how those two load profiles come together to exist in that building. To understand how the cooling and the heating interact. Because when cooling and heating interact, in my world, we can operate with super high efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 when, when um, we've got machines that are doing heating and cooling simultaneously, got huge amounts of energy transfer, energy recovery. That's really good for the building, reducing carbon emissions, reducing energy. But in order to select that equipment, in order to optimize that design, in, in order to, in, to, to get the best out of that, that approach, that solution, we need to understand those load profiles. Yeah. And that's, that's, re- that's, that's really data-led decision-making. And the reality is, in existing buildings, those, those profiles don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that, across, is that across the whole building stock we can sort of apply this? You know, the built environment, as Chris said, there's, well, Chris said 1.6. I've got written down here 2.2 million buildings that are, that are available to retrofit. So, but regardless of the number, it, it's high. And, and we're looking at 358,000 offices. You know, is this application of, of heat recovery um, available for, for all buildings? And, you know, we have to consider heritage sites. We have to consider, well, there's a whole plethora of building types, but... Yeah. Where can we, as Mitsubishi Electric, the experts in this field, in this product field, mm. um, regardless of the sort of lack of data situation right now, let's say Utopia, we have the data. Mm. Can we apply this to that whole building stock? Well, let's think about the data itself. So, um, you know, we, we, the, the kind of data we're talking about is, is typically minute by minute or half hour by half hour mm-hmm. energy usage data. Mm-hmm. Which which is expensive to get hold of, you know, to in, to, to get a to get a, an existing building which doesn't have that kind of um, data collection to install that level of data collection is quite expensive and also it's time consuming. In order to understand how a building's operating throughout the four seasons, you need to be measuring the building for those four seasons. And the reality is is that when we the road to next zero is an expedited one. Mm-hmm. Um, once funding becomes available for a decarbonisation project, we don't really want to tell the, that client or that customer or that building operator that we're going to have to wait a year to collect data mm-hmm. to give them the answers that they, that they need. It's not affordable, is it? It's not affordable, it's not achievable, it's yeah. not feasible. So, so in, the, in, 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 the, in the absence of real-world data, what we need or what, what we could do with mm-hmm. is um, a, a set of clear assumptions. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if we look at cooling or heating in... in in isolation, mm-hmm. um, we have British standards, we have European standards, which help us analyze and predict the energy use within a building. We call this BSEN 14825. It allows us to take the heat profile or the cooling profile of an average building mm-hmm. in an average climate, a colder climate or a warmer climate, depending on where you are in Europe. And it means that you can apply technology like chillers, like heat pumps or gas boilers, um, and you can get an estimation of the efficiency based on that usage profile, based on the load profile, based on the temperature profile um, from a weather point of view as well, okay? What we don't have is a standard that allows us to do the same thing, but to look at the interactions between heating and cooling. Mm -hmm. Um, If we we understood the average building usage from a heating and cooling interaction point of view, and we had a standard industry way of measuring the efficiency of a product that could provide both at the same time, that would that would give us a big leap forward in terms of taking a building where we don't have the data, we apply these assumptions, we apply these models, we apply this research, and we can tell that owner 
what the efficiency would be of a, of a relatively standard piece of kit. Mm -hmm. in, in, in our world, we, 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 when, we, when we talk about the efficiency of the equipment I'm talking about, multifunction, full pipe, yep. um, simultaneous heat, heating and cooling equipment, we talk about, in Mitsubishi Electric, a total efficiency ratio. So that total efficiency ratio is something that we've come up with. It's mm -hmm. something that we, uh, it, it's a calculation that we use to assess the energy used by the machine and the energy that it can deliver in both heating and cooling. But that isn't a, 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 a that isn't a standard that's right. shared by other manufacturers. Um, when we look at heating or cooling equipment, so a, a piece of equipment that can deliver heating, when we give a seasonal coefficient of performance, that is assessed in line with that, that code that I mentioned, BSEN 14825. Yeah. Same in cooling, same in heating. Um, but when we're offering heating and cooling together, yeah. Which, yeah. which seems to be the highest level of demand for decarbonisation, yeah. we, we don't have that data. So, okay. so there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of work that we could do as an industry to come together and, and solve so that problem. I think we're, you know, if we're looking at this as this whole retro piece market, let's imagine it's a book and, and we're writing the chapters right now. I think our first podcast was, was chapter one, you know, on the scale. Um, I think chapter two, you, you could talk about building data. And chapter three, Rich, you're sort of looking at potentially a whole building approach here and understanding it in application. And Chris, I want to I want to bring you bring you in here because we always talk about applied sustainability. How do we apply our products sustainably? And also understanding as as, as Rich actually brought up a standard. You know what what's the industry standard at the moment, or what's the what's the regulations? What's the the guidance? The the policy um, that's being driven to make sure that we're applying. Um, application sustainably to ensure that we hit our future standard of, of 2050? Or is there well, one? Is there one? Well, I was about to say, Don, let's just be clear, there, there isn't really one. Um, you know, the, the, this is kind of part of what I do, mm -hmm. is that the, the industry doesn't look at things, or clients don't look at things in the same frame and terminology as um, Richard was just talking about. They don't look at the the efficiency of a product. They look about how much energy does the building use and how much carbon does the building produce. Obviously, the, the, the function of how much energy it uses and how much carbon it produces is directly related to the efficiency at which we're producing heating and cooling from a product. And obviously, as Rich said, if we can produce both at the same time, then we get even better efficiency. But the clients are interested in how much energy they're consuming and how much carbon they're producing. So we need to find a way of, uh, of being able to join those two things much better together. Um, and picking up the point about where we start is, I think if everybody was willing to commit to a building to say, we are going to have to do this, then the best starting point is to pay to have a, you know, a consultant or someone similar to do a detailed analysis of, of that building, um, you know, to actually do heat loss calculations, to do cooling load calculations, to, you know, verify the state of the current building as it stands now and then you know propose a solution to it i think a lot of the time that's an awful lot of investment up front mm. it's an awful lot of time up front before you're even thinking about what a solution could look like so how do you how do you basically uh, justify spending all of that money before you even get to the starting line mm. you know um yeah. as you know i do like an analogy so um it's a bit like deciding that you're going to be a Here we go. Runner. Strap in everybody <laughs> <laughs> I will get one in every. I will get one in every episode. A bit like deciding you're going to be a hundred meter runner, and before you've learned how to do it, you've gone out and, and spent an awful lot of money on a very expensive set of running shoes. 
That's not your best, but we'll run with it. <laughs> no, to be fair, oh, I'm no. gonna, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, you know considering what, what you've just said there, Chris, the, com the common approach to decarbonizing a heating or a cooling system or both is to size the new equipment based on the size of the old equipment. Okay, so if we take a building where a gas boiler is reaching end of life, but maybe it's 20 or 25 years old, um, uh, if that... if it, it, if that boiler system had a capacity of let's just say a megawatt, there's a there's a strong um, you know there's a strong trend of of, of clients and, and and consultants and 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 contractors coming to Mitsubishi Electric and asking for a megawatt heat pump, and that's fine. You know, um, if 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 we go ahead and we we replace a gas boiler like for like with 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 a heat pump alternative, same capacity, same flow temperature. We we will we will reduce the carbon emissions of that building, okay. Um, that's the advantage of a heat pump. We're operating at you know, two hundred fifty, three hundred, three hundred fifty percent efficiency, mm. and of course, we, you know, I'm sure you guys have spoken on, on previous podcasts about the advantage of using electricity as a fuel. Yeah. But there's there is another step for further optimization. If we can if we can reduce the size of the heat pump mm -hmm. relative to the the needs of the building today. We can take into account fabric upgrades that have happened mm -hmm. to that building over the last 20 years. Single glazing replaced with double glazing, insulation put in the roof, insulation mm -hmm. put in the walls, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ultimately, what we're doing is we're saving the client money and we're putting a, a, an even more efficient or a more optimized heat pump system in. And that's, what the, that's the benefit of that upfront spending, that upfront investigation. Two, two questions. Um, I'm gonna quickly go back to Chris, if you don't mind, before I pose a question to yourself, Rich, and, sure. and that question is about um, the zero carbon building standard, Chris. That's 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 basically anyone who is um, sorry, everyone who is anyone is, is creating this standard, and right and rightly so, um, and that's looking to be out what summer next year potentially. But is does that does that standard well, yeah, at the moment, include yeah. retrofit? You know, is is there a standard to retrofit in terms of you know what the industry is trying to drive towards, like the the zero carbon design standard, building standards? Well, a net, a net zero carbon building is is a net zero carbon building irrelevant of whether it's a brand new construction building or or an existing building. Obviously, there's going to be difficulties to to try and get to the same amount of energy use per square meter for an existing building as there will be for a for a new construction building for obvious reasons. Um, you know better uh, building fabric and uh, better air tightness mm -hmm. um you know the overall you know the way that we can even build a building and, and point it in a particular direction a particular orientation to to make better use of solar energy and things like that whereas you can't pick up a, uh, an 18th century building and rotate it by 90 degrees so you don't get as much solar gain it doesn't work quite as easily that way so that there will always be differences but the the standard is um is going to set Crucially, it's going to set limits rather than targets. And I think that's a really important yeah, uh, point for it because I think there's been a lot, an awful <laughs> lot of talk about targeting certain things. Um, but the reality is that, it, you know, targets are possibly not achievable or it's easy to not explain why you haven't got to a target, whereas a limit is, is a little bit more black and white. Uh, if you want to get to this um, this standard, then, then this is the limit. So... Uh, be much more difficult for existing buildings than it maybe it will be for new buildings, but the limits will still be the limits. Um, the standard, hopefully, will be 
uh, ready by the end of next year, uh, the end of 2023. At the moment, the industry is desperately trying to pull together as much evidence of existing buildings um, and existing work that's been carried out to, to model buildings, design buildings, log data from buildings, so that we, you know, we know where we currently are. How can you start setting limits if you if you don't really know where we currently are? So that that work's being undertaken at the moment. Um, well, hopefully we will we'll start to see some more information come out um, around about middle of next year, uh, and then as I say, the, the the timeline, a very optimistic timeline to be honest, but it, it doesn't need to be pushed through because you know we need to get on this sooner rather than later. Is the end of next year, mm. uh, but hopefully that that will give everybody a rule book for one of a better phrase to uh, to use as to how to look at a building and uh, and how to approach it. I, I don't think that will change the topic that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. You'll still be required to to take your existing building and and understand exactly how the building is currently working, how much energy you're currently using, how much cooling you're currently using, how much heating you're currently using, um, how leaky is the, is the building now. All of those, that work will still need to be undertaken, I think. So we don't need to wait for that standard before uh, building owners and occupiers, landlords, etc., actually start to, uh, to measure the current state of play. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Chris. And I think that follows on nicely to the question I was actually going to ask Rich. He circled the wagons right there. Um, Rich, bear, bear with me on this one. So we currently receive, and please correct me if I'm wrong, we currently receive um, cooling loads, heating loads, and we design uh, equipment to, to meet those demands, right? But in today's day and age, how we operate and use a building is completely diff different to how we used to. You know, I'm sat in the office today on a Friday and, and the amount of people in this office today is nowhere near the same as on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And therefore, the equipment that's currently sat on our roof is probably fairly redundant right now. Um, and I think that we need to have a better relationship or a better understanding between the landlord and the tenant and how that building is going to be used. I appreciate that it's going to be hard to predict, but surely an open sort of conversation um, at that design sort of stage where we understand how the building is going to be used is, is, is going to be crucial. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what that looks like in, in application. So our kit, essentially, how, how, how can we design for, um, I guess, how buildings are being used today with, with the like of, of, of hybrid working, etc. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, ultimately, the habits of users within a building, the way in which a building is used, utilised, occupied, mm -hmm. I, I put that under the, the banner of kind of load profiling. So going back to what I was saying earlier, the load profile of the building is vital and, and the habits of the, of, of the individuals within the building are probably the biggest driver of that load profile, mm -hmm. how the building's being used. Um, in order to produce a system or design a system that's robust to what you describe, it's all about load variability. It's all about understanding what is the minimum load of that building. Um, and when we're operating at minimum load, are we doing it efficiently? You know, um, if we think about the previous, um, the previous approach to designing buildings, specifically offices, you'd install a, re a, a relatively large chiller system, mm -hmm. um, and then you would have uh, a boiler system which would provide both heating and cooling throughout the year. Um, load variabili variability mm -hmm. um, was something that, that was not well designed, well understood previously in buildings. You had very large cooling equipment that wasn't very capable of producing smaller volumes of cooling, smaller amounts of cooling. So, of course, 
what you have is inefficiency, large pieces mm -hmm. of plant trying to reach very small loads. So what we see in design for new construction now mm -hmm. is, um, is, 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 is preempting that load variability, mm -hmm. making sure that new construction buildings are designed with heating and cooling systems or energy systems that can, that can adapt from 100% right down to five or maybe, mm -hmm. maybe even less in terms of their capacity. The challenge with, with um, existing buildings is we're back in kind of the old school. We're back in large, large plant, little adaptability. So when we come to decarbonize, when we come to replace that equipment, that information that you describe is vital. Mm. Um, and there are a number of ways to, 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 to kind of get around or, or, or provide a more efficient system. You mentioned meeting rooms, etc. Mm -hmm. So you know, one 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 thing that uh, that I recognise, you know, when I when when I spend time with customers, etc. In London, in in the big London offices, is people seem to be more concentrated than, than they used to be. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people are working from home, and they'll come into the office for the big meetings. So you have meeting rooms that are empty on Mondays and Fridays, mm -hmm. and then in the middle of the week they're full. You know, and some of these meeting rooms are huge. And of course, when you've got a lot of people in a confined space, you need a lot of ventilation, you need a lot of cooling, you need to bring lots of clean, fresh air into the, in, into the, into the building, into the room. Um, so decentralizing some of this big central plant is quite important. You know, rather than having a huge AHU serving all of the rooms in a building, um, potentially thinking about a decentralized system with right. individual ventilators for each, uh, for, each, um, for each meeting room, as an example. So if you've got 10 meeting rooms in a building and only one's occupied, but there's 70 people in that meeting room, you're only running one system to serve that room rather than an entire ventilation system for the entire building. That's an example of that decentralized approach. From, from a heating and cooling point of view, obviously we, we, we tend to talk about heat pumps, um, heat pumps and multifunction chillers, et cetera. Um, inverters, um, equipment that, can, that, mm -hmm. that have high variability in terms of their load. Um, and in terms of their duty. Thanks, Rich. And I think we, we've spoken a lot about energy use intensity. And I, and I think I actually just want to poise the final question to, to yourself, Chris, if you don't mind. And Rich, feel free to feel free to jump in. So on, on the last episode, we, we spoke a lot about the targets that the retrofit market um, has to hit. And those targets are EPC rating of B by, by 2030 is the main one that, that sticks to mind. Um, Chris, I want to throw this over the fence to you, um, and I want to talk about if EPCs are fit for purpose. Well, the thing you've got to remember, I think, Dan, is that um, EPCs are something. Yeah, they, you know, they they provide a, a, a fairly easy to understand rating system to summarise the energy efficiency of a building, and obviously part of that uh, summary includes some recommended measures as to how to improve the energy efficiency of that building. So. In its fundamental basis, an EPC is a, is a really straightforward, easy to understand thing. Um, and I think I've seen some stats from the government, actually, from the uh, the non-domestic um, national energy efficiency framework data that indicates that EPCs have driven some significant improvements in the building stock. Uh, and as I say, not everyone is quite as technical as uh, as us and don't necessarily understand exactly all, all of the uh, the things that impact the efficiency of a building so I, I wouldn't say an EPC is a bad thing I think the question I'm waiting is, for a but here I'm waiting for a but 
Well, the, the, I think the question you, that you actually have got to ask is not whether an EPC is a good or a bad thing. Is will, will EPCs get us to net zero in 2050? That that's probably a better question, I think. Um, and I don't think in their current form they will, because uh, the way that we need to approach um, buildings is it's not we've got to uncouple carbon from energy for a start, because uh, what what a good building uses a small amount of energy shouldn't necessarily be measured from a carbon point of view and, and epcs don't really measure either of those things they talk about how efficient a building is not necessarily about how much energy uh, it, it's consuming or how much carbon it's emitted so i definitely think that they've um, they've been useful um whether they need to change in order to get us to net zero um i think they probably do and um, they're not going to go anywhere not in the sh short term anyway as an existing database, um, it, it gives you a really quick and easy overview of uh, of a current performance of a building. But I think that's what needs to change. And that's what we talked about before, Dan, with the net zero carbon building standard. We actually need to have a much clearer view of what good looks like and what a good building does and doesn't do. Um, and I don't think an EPC currently does that. So maybe um, it could be changed to uh, to align with with that or maybe it could be add some additional metrics for example to to epc um to give people you know a better idea but i think the fundamental principle of, of having a fairly straightforward rating system that people can understand is not a bad thing yes i i, I like the way that it's you know a b c d e f g etc it's easy, easy to understand but i think um where i was coming from is that epc is that rating of in design and there's the clear performance gap of the building that is in design versus the operational piece that me and Rich have just spoken about. So maybe one to ponder on on a future podcast and, and feel free listeners to, to drop in the comments and, and let us know your thoughts. You know, this is about the built environment um, and we want to know more. Uh, we're constantly learning. So feel free to drop in the comments um, and let us know your thoughts around if EPCs are a fit for purpose. Gents, any other comments? Nothing from you, No, Rich. not really, Dan. I think uh, there's plenty to talk about. Um, if only we had some really clear answers to all these questions, um, we, we probably wouldn't need to, to have the podcast. So uh, I think it's about generating more conversation um, so that everybody's on board with the, with the direction of travel. You trying to make me redundant, Chris? <laughs> just, I could uh, never do that, Dan. I, just quickly, Chris, you did mention um, ND need. So was that National Energy Efficiency Framework? If there's any of our listeners want to do a bit of light reading this weekend, I think it's a good source of it's information the, by the sounds of it. Yeah, it's the Non-Domestic National Energy Efficiency Data Framework. It just rolls off the tongue. Uh, the government produced a report. Uh, it only covers England and Wales, and that might be part of the reason for the difference in the figures that we were talking about before, Dan. Um, I'm talking about 1.75 million non-domestic mm. buildings, but that's only England and Wales. Uh, so I think you mentioned, was it 2.2 million? Yeah, uh, that right. may well include Scotland. But the, the report, the ND need report, is uh, England and Wales only. Um, they produce one every year. Uh, they've even produced a summary report that covers a multiple number of years. And it just gives you a, a flavour of uh, what type of buildings uh, are, are in England and Wales, how big they are, how much energy they consume. Uh, so that's really helpful. Um, I think awesome. that some of the data from that needs to... Uh, to be used to inform uh, how improvements are being made because that, that data is, is taken from meters. Uh, but you can get all of this information from 
uh, from the gov.uk website. Perfect. Cool. Chaps, thanks very much for your time. Um, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Ask Me podcast. Please do uh, subscribe, follow, like, comment and share. Um, and we'll be recording again very soon on a future topic uh, within the built environment. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.